Welcome to the SEO Happy Hour Podcast with We Do Web Content. Listen up, marketers and small business owners. If you're looking to get a better grasp on understanding how to use proven digital marketing techniques to grow your business, you're in the right place. On our SEO Happy Hour Podcast, our team will teach you the proven techniques we use with our clients and interview the industry experts on marketing, SEO, content, social, and more. Grab a drink and a seat. And here is your host, Alex Valencia. Hey friends, Alex Valencia here with We Do Web Content. Thanks again for checking out the latest episode of SEO Happy Hour. On this episode, I have the honor to speak with Doug Zanes about the ongoing legal cases against the opioid manufacturers. Doug is the owner of Zanes Law, also a personal friend and a client. He owns the Arizona-based injury law firm that serves clients in Arizona and nationwide called Zanes Law. Make sure you check him out. A quick note before we get started, Doug and I recorded this podcast prior to the Johnson & Johnson recent $20 million uh, settlement with the two Ohio County. So we will not be discussing that specific development, but we will be discussing the $572 million judgment against Johnson & Johnson, Purdue Pharma filing for bankruptcy as part of the settlement, and what that means in the context of the opioid crisis in our country and the legal cases against the pharmaceutical companies. Uh, Doug has a lot of insight on the subject to share with you on these developments, um, also with those affected by the opioid crisis and with attorneys that are trying these cases. Thank you so much for listening and enjoy. Welcome folks, thank you so much for joining us on another episode on SEO Happy Hour. Today's episode is not on SEO, but rather on what our clients work on. Uh, today, we're speaking to Doug Zanes, who's a personal friend and a client of We Do Web Content. Doug Zanes is the owner of Zanes Law. Zanes Law is an Arizona personal injury law firm that not only operates and handles cases in Arizona, but throughout the United States and also handles the type of cases we're going to be talking about today, which is mass torts. Um, and Doug um, can talk a little bit about what a mass tort is. But more specifically, today we're going to be talking about the ruling um, that happened back in August uh, that Oklahoma ruled that Johnson & Johnson had to pay the state $572 million for playing down the dangers and overselling the benefits of opi op opioids. Um, so this was the first trial of the drug manufacturer for the opioid crisis, which is, uh, you know, deep in my heart. You know, I've had friends who OD'd on oxycontin and opioids and more importantly my dad was hooked on it for a while before he passed away till i was able to bring him home and rehab him um so it's you know it's horrible how this was being used and pushed in through big pharma and through the medical industry but you know hopefully we can put a stop and, and use it the way it should be used um also there was a ruling back uh just this past week or two weeks ago purdue pharma the maker of oxycontin um, they filed for bankruptcy as part of a larger plan to set aside $10 billion to resolve a variety of lawsuits that blame Purdue for, for the opioid crisis. Um, Purdue Pharma is owned by the Sackler family, many of whom have also been named in uh, lawsuits facing the company. Doug Zanes, thank you so much for being part of the show and, uh, you know, client and a friend. Um, you know, let, let's start real quick, more, more basic. Tell me about you and then uh, maybe we could just 
jump in and, and tell the audience what a mass tort is, and we'll talk about these cases and, and what your thoughts are on them. Okay, thanks, Alex. Um, the, you know, as I said, we, we are based out of Arizona. I've got offices in Tucson and Phoenix. Um, I started my practice in about 2003. I've been practicing law for a little over 20 years. And, you know, we represent clients who have been injured, you know, uh, really in just about every manner. Um, you know, everything from car accidents to, as you mentioned, these mass tort cases. Um, you know, and, and that's, you know, I decided years ago that if I was going to practice law, that's, uh, you know, personal injury and injury law was uh, where I thought I could impact society in the most positive way, you know, help clients uh, in the best possible way. And so we've really spent the last, you know, 16 years or so, you know, here at Zane's Law uh, doing that. And I think we do, do it very well. Um, you know, we're here today and we wanted to talk about mass torts a little bit. And I think one of the things, you know, people kind of confuse mass torts and class action cases. Um, you know, class action cases tend to be where you have a group of people that have been harmed somehow, but it tends to be a much smaller group. They tend to be kind of on a state level or, you know, a, a, you know, largest, maybe a regional level. But let's say you were to take a group of people here in the state of Arizona who were being, you know, taxed by, you know, I don't know, a, a public utility in, uh, in an illegal or inappropriate way. And you'd gather up the people in Arizona and bring a claim on their behalf. Mass tort claims are much bigger. I mean, they're generally on a national scale, mass tort claims, to a large degree, tend to revolve around defective products. Uh, you know, a large number of them being pharmaceuticals or medical devices that don't work properly, weren't designed properly, uh, didn't include the proper warnings, uh, all of those things. And so, you know, and when we talk about mass torts today, what we're really talking about is we're talking about huge numbers of people who have been harmed, and this, you know, in a mass tort case is a way, quite frankly, for the legal system to simply deal with uh, that volume uh, of victims uh, that are included in, you know, in a case where, for example, you have, in this case, opioid medications that are sold not only on a national level, but an international level. But when we talk about within our system here in the U.S., it's everybody across the U.S., you know, who have been injured. And this is, you know, the opioid uh, kind of cases are really kind of interesting because it, they're at this point less consumer driven and more driven by the states. You know, really the attorney generals in each state have been the ones who have taken the lead on going after these pharmaceutical companies uh, in these, you know, that produce opioids and market opioids versus uh, attorneys like me and private clients having to get that ball rolling. Um, and it's, so it's a little bit of a different dynamic than we generally see, I think, in a lot of mass tort cases. Interesting, good. And I'm glad you touched on that, the difference between class action and mass tort, because uh, my family and friends really don't know what kind of work we do. So uh, there's always a differentiation. And then when I talk, you know, I'm saying, hey, I'm going to a mass tort conference and try to explain what that is compared to a class action there's always some confusion. So uh, I'm glad you touched on that. So why do you think this ruling is, is significant in the legal sense and in the grand scheme of the ongoing opioid crisis in our country? Well, specifically with the Johnson & Johnson ruling, 
you know, really kind of the significance of it is still out there to, I think, be figured out because it's such a new ruling. And you really have, at least on the legal end, I mean, you know, certainly if you're, you know, the attorney general in Oklahoma who brought the case, we could probably disagree, uh, or I'm sure you disagree. But, you know, the challenge with that ruling is, you know, I think a lot of people believe the decision the judge made was a stretch when it came to the public nuisance statute that the claim was brought up. Um, you know, it, it specifically, and I actually wrote it down, <laughs> so, you know, because it's a little complicated, but essentially, right. you know, what the state of Oklahoma said uh, was Johnson & Johnson basically violated this public nuisance statute and created an environment where, you know, the state was forced or has been forced to spend a huge amount of money fighting the opioid crisis, dealing with the opioid crisis. And really the statute says that, um, you know, a public nuisance consists in unlawfully doing an act or omitting, um, you know, to perform a duty. Uh, and had they either done the act or they performed the duty or, or actually because they failed to perform the duty or, you know, they, they caused harm. Um, you know, they annoyed, they injured, they endangered the comfort and the health and safety of others. You know, and so it's sort of a, I don't know, kind of uh, from my perspective, a very generalized statute. Oh, my light just went off. There we go. It's a very generalized statute. And so they sort of had to massage the statute. They had to massage the arguments to make their case. And the judge went with them, but to, to kind of, I guess, make my point on how challenging it was, you know, this was just a month or so ago. If we just go back to May of this year, a very similar case was brought in North Dakota against um, Purdue Pharma and the judge dismissed it. The judge in North Dakota looked at it and said, there's no way this statute was designed to deal with this situation. Right. Just dismissed the case where the judge in Oklahoma listened to all the evidence, made his ruling uh, and found in favor of the state and, you know, fine Johnson Johnson, for lack of a better way to put it, sanctioned them, you know, penalized them, um, you know, to the tune of you know, about $750 million or so. But now that's up on appeal. And the question is, what will the appellate judges do with it? And a lot of attorneys think, and I happen to be in that camp, that I don't believe it'll succeed on appeal. Uh, but I think the real impact of the decision is it starts to swing momentum. You know, when you look at these cases, you know, right now you've got, you know, a much bigger action going on in federal court in Ohio, which is essentially a mass tort uh, that primarily involves the states, but other, some other parties are involved, that's made a bunch of different arguments. And uh, kind of a public nuisance argument is part of that claim, but it has a, a number of other arguments. Uh, and so it's really a, a different case, a separate case. But I think the swinging of the momentum is a big deal. Uh, it's a big deal when it comes to pharmaceutical companies and them trying to um, balance risk and decide what do they want to do with these claims? Do they want to try to settle them? Do they want to fight them? You know, Johnson & Johnson is known, quite honestly, in the ind industry is sort of 
the 800 pound gorilla that does fight all this stuff and they fought it full out and weren't successful i think that sends a message uh to a lot of the other pharmaceutical companies who aren't nearly as inclined to litigate this stuff um you know so certainly from a plaintiff's or a claimant's perspective i think the ruling uh was a big win you know even if it gets overturned on appeal because what happens is it's just like any news cycle you know there's been a whole lot of press around this decision since it was made over the last month my personal belief is if three years from now uh, Johnson Johnson wins on appeal, you'll maybe see a blurb here or there. And three years from now, or two years from now, all, all this other litigation will have moved significantly forward. Um, you know, and so really this decision, uh, what matters is the decision that was made a month ago, not what happens on appeal. It's my personal belief. Got it. Okay. So do you think the judge's ruling, and, and you might have kind of answered this um, in Johnson and Johnson's case have any effect on, you know, any other cases, including the multi-district litigation in Ohio? Yeah. Well, I, I think it, I, it, it impacts the parties. You know, I mean, you actively saw um, Purdue Pharma, which is really one of the biggest pharmaceutical companies involved in this opioid and these opioid claims and litigation really make what they saw as an effort to settle um, a lot of these claims with the states. Now, you know, you've got to keep in mind, right? You know, you're really kind of settling with each state individually, and, you know, and it's a real complicated process to do outside of, uh, for example, the mass tort case out of Ohio. You know, so when uh, Purdue Pharma was trying to do it, they were really trying to work out deals with everybody but pull everybody in and the problem they ran into is you had some states who said oh, okay that sounds like a reasonable resolution to me that proposed what was being proposed and where they ended up but then you also had lots of other states who said that's not nearly enough money that's not you know you guys aren't putting nearly enough on the table uh and so it's tough when you have you know 50 or so you know attorney generals uh, who all have to agree on what the ultimate resolution is and how the money's going to be divided up. And so really what you saw was it had been a continued conversation until this ruling in Johnson and Johnson. And then suddenly a week or so later, Purdue Pharma's filing bankruptcy. Right. Really, what they did was they said, well, we're going to make this easier on us. You know, the law allows us to file bankruptcy. We're going to go file bankruptcy, which means now everybody has to play in the same arena. All the different states were going after Purdue Pharma. If you want to make a claim, you've got to deal with that specific federal bankruptcy judge. You've got to stand in front of him, tell him what your claim is, get him to, you know, he's ultimately going to approve or not approve what, what the settlement is or what the resolution to all of this stuff is. And so, you know, that was, you know, the easiest way for them to kind of approach it, if you want to know the truth, because I think they are on the top of everybody's list to go after. You know, Johnson Johnson was in the mix, but I think Purdue Pharma is. What's really, next on the list? Well, and I think I think they they make up the vast majority of them, right? They're, yeah, they're, they're the guys who started all this stuff back in 1997 or so, and they're, from my perspective, just in everything I've read, the um, worst apple in the bunch. You know, uh, I mean, by far, in my personal opinion. Yeah, yeah. So you know that, that makes sense. I was going to come up with uh, 
you know, one of my questions on, on why they would file bankruptcy and, and your answer is just to make it easy on themselves. So do, do you think, um, do you think that they can still be sued based on the, the bankruptcy? So, you know, how, how would this develop it? Um, will they'll still be able to file opioid lo- related lawsuits against Purdue after yeah. bankruptcy? Uh, yeah, no. the, the quick answer is no. I mean, it protects them. Yeah. You know, and what, they, ha- what, ha- what happens is I can bring a claim, I, you know, but my claim gets stayed, and then I have to go become part of that bankruptcy. Right. And stand in line with all the other creditors. And, you know, it, it's, you know, and there's, you know, bankruptcy judges deal with everything from, you know, just personal little individual bankruptcies to these huge corporate bankruptcies. Um, but this is going to be a big, complex bankruptcy, uh, you know, and lots of, you know, you'll have lots of people in there vying, you know, for, uh, or with input on what the ultimate resolution is. You'll have everybody from their normal business partners, let's say banking partners, uh, you know, big banks, uh, you know, whoever uh, they deal with as vendors, whoever, you know, they owe money to, you know, I mean, again, you know, Purdue Pharma's purpose in their bankruptcy isn't to go out of business. I, I don't believe. No, it's to get out of this. Yeah, so they allocated ten billion dollars. I think part of that went to the state in a certain amount to some of the people or who whoever was injured with it. What was that amount? No, well, no, that was pretty much all to the different states. And oh, the problem they were running into is they couldn't agree on a number. You know, right. the, um, you know, uh, owners of Purdue Pharma. You know, I mean, they put a lot up. I mean, you, you got to figure, you know, they're the billionaires. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, they were willing to say, look, we'll put up, I, I believe it's $3 billion of our money. You know, because keep in mind, Purdue Pharma is a corporate entity. You know, it may be owned by a family, right. but it's still a corporate entity uh, to a certain degree or to a large degree, assuming the owners did their business correctly, you actually should protect the owners from personal liability. You know, now in this process, I think you have a lot of the states saying they should be personally responsible. Um, you know, and I'm not sure, I haven't been able to glean exactly what the basis of those arguments are. You know, again, it, it would be sort of akin to if you took this Johnson & Johnson case, which is a publicly traded company, and said, well, we're going to hit you for $750 million, but we think the CEO uh, should pay a hundred million of that. Well, I mean, he's just an employee of the company. Right. You know, you've got to have a reason to hit him. Now, when you take Purdue Pharma, for example, I think it was around 2006 or seven, it was actually a subsidiary of Purdue, Purdue Pharma where a number of the executives were actually charged with crimes in relation to how they were marketing opioids. And they didn't go to jail, but what happened was when it was all said and done, uh, they uh, you know, had to pay out a huge amount of money because they were found guilty of uh, breaking the law and how they marketed opioids. And so, you know, again, it's not Purdue Pharma, it's a subsidiary. You know, the family members aren't sitting in that subsidiary as the CEO running the company. You know, and so, but the idea is, well, they own it. They should know everything. They should be responsible for everything. But that's not necessarily how business structures work from a legal perspective. Now, I did see, well, I think it was either earlier this week or the end of last week, that maybe the Attorney General of New York is really starting to look into uh, 
their personal banking. You know, I guess the, the allegation is they personally transferred or wired, you know, tens of millions of dollars or more, you know, from U.S. accounts over to Swiss accounts. Um, well, the question is uh, that I have, you know, at this point is, well, but what money was that? If they're wiring money out of a company that's a separate entity into their personal accounts, then yeah, that becomes a big problem because you suddenly uh, put yourself in a position where you're personally responsible for now a lot of these things potentially. If what they're doing is they're just wiring their own personal money that they can essentially uh, kind of trail back and show, look, this is money we earn. It's our pay. It's our you know, stock options we sold back to the company or whatever it is. But this is our personal money that we owed and we pay tax on it. We have every right to move it to whatever bank account we want. Then what it is, is it's a new cycle that looks bad for them. But when it's all said and done, just kind of fades away because they haven't done anything wrong. All that is stuff that still, I think, needs to be sorted out. Right. But what happens is in the bankruptcy, you know, anybody who has a claim, anybody who says they need to pay money, anybody who you know, has brought these legal actions. So in particular, the states now has to come to a resolution in front of a bankruptcy judge. And so any potential settlement, a bankruptcy judge will sit there and actually decide, is that a reasonable resolution, given everything? And all the parties can think that they have one and the bankruptcy judge may look at it and say, no, that's not good enough. You know, I think Purdue Pharma needs to put more on the table. You know, um, or if the parties can't agree at some point, the bankruptcy judge will decide, you know, and it'll all be done somewhere down the road, most likely. Now, conceivably, you know, it's possible, the bankruptcy judge could say, well, you know, in order to, uh, you know, cover these claims and, you know, pay what I think needs to be paid, we're going to dissolve the company and pay out, uh, you know, and sell off the assets right. and all these other things and put you guys out of business. But the perfect example, from my perspective, would be back in, you know, 2008, nine, when the government bailed out a number of the uh, car manufacturers. The banks, oh. And, yeah, the car manufacturers, and they all filed bankruptcy. Well, they're still here. They owed a lot of people a lot of money, you know, and in particular, you can say, well, you can say, but that's different. We're talking about lawsuits against them. Well, it actually isn't, because when, let's say General Motors filed bankruptcy. Everybody who had a products liability claim against General Motors for a seatbelt that had failed, for a car that was improperly manufactured, you know, there were mass tort claims against General Motors and they all just kind of went away. You know, if you were the claimant, the victim, you really got the short end of that stick, I believe, in the grand scheme of things. Um, you know, and so, you know, what Purdue, Purdue Pharma filing bankruptcy, I don't think it's a great thing for the states and the claimants, but the problem is that is where everybody knew they would go if a resolution wasn't reached. You know, I mean, you know, states are sophisticated, the attorney generals in each state, I mean, they're sophisticated, they're smart lawyers, you know, you have states, they're not, you know, individuals. Yeah, everybody knows how this stuff works and, you know, and everybody knew that that's where they were gonna go if, if resolution wasn't reached but now we have to see how it all shakes out if purdue were a publicly traded company like johnson and johnson would the bankruptcy have been more difficult or would it have been the same situation i think it would have been you know i mean i don't practice bankruptcy law um so you know my skill 
my knowledge <laughs> base is limited, I would, I, I'd say. But I think it's challenging uh, because what happens is if you're a publicly traded company, you do owe, you do have a duty to your stockholders. Right. <clears throat> when you go and file bankruptcy, what do you think happens to your stock? You know, it goes down the tubes, your stockholders yeah. lose a huge amount of money. Um, having said that, the flip side of it is if it's go into bankruptcy or go out of business, well, your stockholders are probably much better off in the long run if you don't go out of business. You know, now when you file bankruptcy and, and your company gets dissolved, the stockholders lose too. I mean, that's the risk in investing, right? Um, but I do, I, I, I think it's, I, I personally believe that, I, or I'd like to personally think it's more challenging to just go file bankruptcy if you're a publicly traded company um, than it is if you're privately held like Purdue Pharma is. Do you think other companies will come out and try to settle now that uh, Purdue's bankruptcy, J&J's been, you know, kind of settled? Any other pharmaceutical companies come out and, and try to settle and avoid this? Yeah, well, yeah, I think it, it provides a pretty significant, both those things provide a pretty significant incentive to try to find a resolution to this. Yeah. Because, you know, you know for for example, well, for starters, you know, not all pharmaceutical companies, I mean, not everybody's huge, right? Not everybody is the size of Purdue Pharma, right. and certainly the size of Johnson & Johnson. Mm -hmm. So if they can't find a resolution, it could put them out of business, number one. Uh, finally, bankruptcy conceivably could put them out of business. You know, and so I think what both of these things do is they sort of, you know, wake these guys up and make them really start to think about risk management and how do we manage what's going on in a way that allows us to deal with it but still stay in business and drive forward and be around you know two years from now 10 years from now 20 years from now um and so yeah i mean i think when it comes to when it comes to that i think both these events uh are there are, uh, will be big catalysts um, and I can tell you, I think the judge from everything I've read who's handling the, uh, you know, the, the big case in Ohio, the federal judge really is pushing everybody to find a resolution. Um, you know, uh, they haven't gotten close to it yet as far from what I can tell or from what I understand. But, you know, there's a reasonably good chance that the, all of that gets resolved um, before it ends up in trial next year sometime. Uh, and so, you know, and what's interesting to me is, again, you know, really the players in all of this right now aren't individual claimants. You know, it's not um, somebody like your dad who, you know, who's bringing a claim saying, look, it's the way you marketed this, uh, you know, the way you pursued uh, this as a business, you know, harmed me. And now you need to pay me individually. I mean, these are the states and the states aren't trying to go let's say get a chunk of $50 million and then divide it up amongst claimants. They're taking that money and using it from a public perspective, you know, whether it's treatment centers, whether it's, you know, you know, programs, uh, you know, to deal with, let's say, I don't know, you know, one example would be, I don't know if this is what they would use it for, but let's say, you know, inmates within the you know, department of corrections within right. their state who have opioid uh, addiction. You know, and providing services to them, or you know, it's really you know the states will use it on a public, at a public level. 
So I don't think really you've even seen the beginnings of individual claimants bringing their claims and mass tort, mass tort starting at that level. Um, you know, and, you know, I think that's coming. You know, that's, yeah, I can't, I don't know that for sure. Um, you know, we certainly, you know, are talking to people who you know, believe they have claims and, you know, talking to other lawyers who handle mass tort claims and trying to figure out where this is going next and all those other things. Um, but, you know, I don't think, I think right now we're at the beginning stages of what all this will be. Uh, you know, and you, but you, you've seen this in lots of, with, with not lots of other products cases, but some. I mean, one would be, you know, uh, asbestos or uh, mesothelioma. Right. Those claims have been going on for a long time, uh, you know, and, you know, really what's happened is you have claimants who continue to come along. And so, you know, I think there's a long way for all of this to go before it's resolved. Yeah, and, and that kind of leads, and I'm going to go back a little bit to how the states are going to be using it towards the public um, as a question, and correct me if I'm wrong. So the states, you know, are getting this bulk of money and are going to use it for for public use, for rehab centers and, and ways to rehabilitate people that were addicted by this, right? So the state was affected initially when this broke out, right? So they had to pour out their own funds to somehow control this problem and then now they're kind of taking that back or they're taking the effort from their perspective of, okay, we're going to avoid this in the future. Were you going to use this money to rehab the people that were affected by it all? Yeah. I mean, you know, I don't know, from my perspective, it seems, it seems a little, I don't know, I guess the best word I can come up with is intangible, meaning, you know, as all this has played out over the last 20 years, because remember Oxycontin came on the market in about 2000, or I'm sorry, 1997. So we're 2019 now. So it's been about 22 years. 22 years. Yeah, you, know, you sort of extrapolate out, right? You take somebody who, you know, gets addicted to opioids, they're functional, their life's going well. Um, because they get addicted to opioids, they lose their job, they lose their home, they end up homeless. You know, now that has an impact on society right it has an impact on us publicly we now have to provide service to right. services to you because you can't support yourself you can't take care of yourself you're homeless how do we help kind of do we help you you know uh, kick the addiction get back on your feet you know become a productive member of society you know so that's from my perspective it's really sort of this intangible sequence of events that the state's talking about you know, they're not, as far as, you know, I don't think they're really saying, oh, well, we've paid X amount for rehab over the next, over the last 22 years, so you need to pay us back. Oh, God. So that's where this whole public nuisance kind of right. angle comes <clears throat> into this. And so, you know, I guess if I had more faith in our bureaucrats or our governmental leaders, I'd have more faith that this money would actually be used in a be way right. to yeah. benefit people who have actually been harmed by opiates. I don't necessarily believe that at this point. I mean, every state will use their money differently. You know, every state will use their money how they think they need to use it. But, you know, I mean, and I guess it's possible, you know, when they work out, when uh, ultimately when resolutions are worked out, there's some, you know, some restrictions on how the money's used. Um, you know, that, but 
it's not done until it's done. And if you have no restrictions and you just give the money to the state, I mean, you know, they'll use it on whatever they think they need to use it on. Right. Roads, you know, uh, kindergarten through 12th grade education. You know, I don't know. But, I mean, if they, you know, you know, your government leaders, you know, they use money where they think they need it. Yeah, where they think it's. You know, so, if they've got that ability. And so that that's the biggest challenge I see is I don't know that any resolution with the states directly benefits people who have harmed by, been harmed by opioids in these companies uh, very well. So that's kind of where my question, next question comes in, like more importantly, um, you know, this is, this show isn't really helping the state at all in any way. How does this affect people that have been affected by opioids or their family members have, you know, how can you help them? You know, what, what, how does this help them? Well, and I think that's the, what has to happen is quite honestly, plaintiff's lawyers right. have to you know, start to, you know, communicate to victims out there, potential victims out there, uh, you know, about, you know, bringing claims. Um, because quite frankly, for individuals to be, uh, I believe, individually compensated, they're going to have to bring claims on their own um, and, you know, move through this process. And like I said, I think the process for individuals is really just at the beginning phases. You know, and it's like anything else. I mean, you know, I'll take uh, oh, vaccinations, you know, back years and years ago, I mean, decades ago, you know, when people were harmed by vaccinations, at some point the government put a program in place and said, well, you can bring a claim and here's how these claims work. And they put a structure to it and they put a fund together. Um, and that's where victims go. I mean, what tends to happen is you have you know, active claimants, and at some point these cases ultimately end, but you typically end up with a fund somewhere down the road, five years down the road, 10 years down the road. So future claimants, if there are future claimants, have a place to make a claim. I mean, it just depends on what the likelihood, I think, of kind of these claims continuing to go on. So you see that a lot with diseases like lung cancer you know, and those types of things. Um, something like you know, opioids, you know, it's a little bit, it'll be, I'll be curious to see what happens. I mean, I don't see the medications going away, but I think what we've already seen happen, and it's, and I don't think it's found the right middle ground yet, is you went from far too many doctors prescribing far too many opioids for the things they shouldn't be prescribing. Right. And the argument is that's all based off the marketing that, you know, the pharmaceutical companies have done. Because I think that people mistakenly think, and maybe the general public mistakenly thinks when we talk about marketing, we're talking about TV ads. That's not really what this is about. I mean, this is about how, for example, Purdue Pharma really marketed to healthcare providers. You know, they really set up a whole system of conferences and, and what they did was they put, they, well, they put together a very sophisticated data gathering process where they basically could tell you, oh, you know, here's where the most prescriptions for Oxycontin are written in the U.S. This city or this state, this town, this doctor. And they would specifically go and hit those doctors up and push them to incentivize them to even give out more. Right. Um, you know, and it had nothing to do with, you know, having you know, more patients is to, you know, push this stuff more. And then in the process, you know, so you have the incentive, the incentivization of all of this, 
you have things like if at least the allegations are they really fed to their salespeople. Oh, if somebody asks what's the likelihood of addiction, your standard answer is less than 1%, which wasn't anywhere near being accurate. Um, you know, and so it really had to do with the their incentivization programs and these conferences and how they dealt with doctors and marketed to doctors, not the general public in, let's say, TV commercial. Um, and I think that's important because that, you know, that, you know, we get used to seeing TV commercials, right, for medications, at least these days. But the idea is that's a very systematic marketing approach um, that at least allegedly included a lot of misinformation um, to doctors and, uh, you know, a lot of calculation on who they were marketing to, why they were marketing to them. Um, and it was all about money. And it ignored the addictive qualities of opioids. Uh, and so where you take a drug, quite frankly, that really, and this is my personal belief, is needed, you know, for cancer patients, for, you know, uh, and in particular for cancer patients, and you as a company decide, well, but that market's not big enough. Right. And so we want to market to the general public that has either chronic pain or just pain. So you go in because you hurt your ankle and some doctor gives you Oxycontin instead of, you know, like some heavy duty Tylenol. Well, I mean, do you really need Oxycontin for your you know, severely sprained ankle? No. You know, but they give it to you and then you get addicted. And now you're, you know, there's a whole chain of events uh, that's negative, conceivable. Um, you know, but that's the problem is, you know, the market that it really serves is much creates much less profitability for these companies. And so they pushed it out to a grand scale. Well, now that all this is coming out, the, one of the challenges I think that we face is suddenly everybody tightens up. And now if you're a patient who can really benefit from this medication, maybe you don't get it. Yeah, and I, and I do think that's something we do need to protect. I mean, you know, I don't know that you would go and let's say, make this medication illegal. So you know what? We're no longer going to make it available to a, a chronic or a severely ill patient who has severe pain who could really benefit from it. You know, but again, that's only a fraction of the overall population, and that's really the problem. I think all these companies have had uh, with you know opioids is they've really focused on the profit and said, "Screw the patient." Um, and I think now, to a certain degree, uh, you know, and, and who knows, we'll see when it all shakes out. It may be to a large degree, you know, uh, how do they put it? The chickens are coming home to roost. Yeah. And, and, you know, and it's been 20 years and you've made a huge amount of money, but, you know, now you're going to, you're going to, you're going to stop. And that's the big thing. And that's really, I think, what this is all about. And that's where the biggest positive impact comes is that needs to happen. You know, the medications need to be managed correctly, they need to prescribe, be prescribed correctly, and they need to, you know, be handled and marketed correctly from at the big pharma level. So all this stuff stops. And then, you, you know, and along the way, you deal with everybody who's been harmed because the reality of it is, is we'll take somebody who becomes addicted and passes away, let's say. Let's say you become, I mean, there, I think there have been lots of people from what I've read uh, or my understanding is certainly could be wrong, but 
you know, again, you get addicted to opioids, you're on opioids and you go out and you shouldn't mix alcohol and opioids and you have three glasses of wine or maybe it's a dozen glasses of wine. I don't know, but you have out, you mix alcohol with it and then you don't wake up the next day. Um, well, if somebody is killed because of their addiction to opioids, it doesn't matter what's paid out tomorrow. It's not going to bring them back. It's not going to make, you know, it's not going to fill the void for their family. It's just the only recourse our system provides. You know, so what really needs to happen out of all of this is how these medications are used and prescribed needs to really go back to, I think, where it originally should have been before it all became about profit. I mean, that's just my personal belief. But. So how does someone, so if someone were to file a claim, what, what, what would their steps be? What did they need to do? And at what point do they decide I should file a claim? Because I know there's, you know, there's obviously advertisements to, to the public at this point on, you know, where we're pulling these cases in and, and we're trying to get claimants for it. At what point does someone decide, hey, I think I might have a case or a family member and what are their next steps? Yeah, well, I mean, what they need to do is, you know, call us or call an attorney like us that handles mass toward injury cases and you know really what we do is you sit out we would sit down we would get all the information we need from them about what's happened and how it's happened and you know who's been harmed i mean again you have everything from potential wrongful death claims to you know somebody who's sitting in front of you saying i'm currently addicted to you know and uh, i can't figure out how to get off of them and here's the impact it's had on me so far and, you know so everybody's claim is individual and so what happens in these mass tort cases in the grand scheme of things is as they develop, really what happens is when you have enough claimants around the country, you know, lawyers have to go and start to file their lawsuits. But then, you know, someone will go and start the process in federal court. And then suddenly what happens is all of these cases become part of that action unless, and this does happen, unless the attorney at the local level can figure out a reason, a legal reason why an individual's case can, should be outside of that mass tort. You know, it's not an easy thing to do because again, the, the, from the court's perspective, they want them all in one big giant group because it's easier to handle and to address. Um, you know, and sometimes, uh, you know, a lot of times cases are you know, better off in that group. But there are cases that if you can keep them outside of that group, you know, they're better claims for your clients. You're in a position to get your clients more money. It's just difficult to do. You just, you've got to have, uh, the best way I'll put it, I guess, on your podcast is I, as a lawyer, have to have a hook that gets me out of the mass tort process, out of uh, what they call the multi, you know, the, uh, MDL process, the multi-district kind of litigation process. Um, and, but it all starts with people who have been harmed, sitting down, talking to an attorney, and finding an attorney who will take the case. And then it moves forward by those attorneys prosecuting those cases. You know, and where a lot of it actually starts is those attorneys actually trying those cases or those claims individually in state court. And what happens a lot of times is suddenly, you know, that's what drives the growth. I mean, you know, you, we've seen it 
when you look at the Roundup litigation for Roundup weed killing that's going on right now, there have been a number of individual verdicts that have been giant. And they're individual. You know, they're not part of this multi you know, jurisdictional litigation. I mean, again, to a large degree, that's just a role. And so what happens is at some point, you know, you have enough people participating in this, enough claimants, I would say, that that's how the courts decide to deal with it. Um, but it's like anything else within our legal system. The only way you ever make anything happen is you go and hire a lawyer who drives your case forward with you. That's where it all has to start. Um, yep. We're happy to talk to anybody, whether they're in Arizona or anywhere in the country about these cases. Um, but the reality of it is, is if you live in Florida, there are a lot of good lawyers in Florida too. You know, if you live in Alabama, there are great lawyers in Alabama. Um, you know, and so, but it does, it takes, I think, individual claimants going forward and saying, look, here's how I was harmed, here's what my claim is, and the lawyer taking that case and running with it. And then these, this litigation just builds from there. And I, I honestly believe that's where we are with the, these opioid cases. We're at the beginning of that process. And is the criteria different for everyone when, when they're uh, being questioned yeah. by the attorney? It's different. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it is. It, it's, you know, it's just the it's individualized. Cases. Yeah. I mean, you know, if, for example, I were to sit down with somebody, you know, and, and, and I'm talking to them about how they're addicted to opioids, um, and here's the damage caused by the opioids, but then we really start to look into the case and we realize, well, before they were addicted to opioids, they were addicted to heroin. You know, that case is most likely much different than somebody who has a case where it's clearly documented they became addicted to opioids, they had never been addicted to anything before, um, they, you know, were, for lack of a better way to put it, living a pristine life went in, had knee surgery, and now they were addicted to opioids. And then here's the damage that caused. You know, I've gotten divorced, right. I my kids, I lost my job that paid yep. me, you know, $80,000 a year. You know, so every case is different, uh, you know, and I'd uh, love to sit here and, you know, tell everybody listening to this that the system is actually fair to everybody. Um, and it's not, you know, uh, it, it's, everybody's got a different case. In any of these cases, who you are um, and how you've ended up, you know, being harmed is a big part of the case, you know? And so um, now having said that at the mass tort level, to a certain degree, I think that becomes less of an issue, but certainly with individual cases, it's a big issue. So the, when the attorney goes to the state to fight for the claimant, they're, trying to pull money from the money that the state's been given. Yeah, well, so like in Johnson and Johnson or Purdue, um, you know, they got 10 billion to the state, uh, Johnson Johnson settled at 572 million as opposed to the 17 billion. You're yeah. going to the state for that. Well, no, I mean, well, here's what will be one thing that will be interesting to see because we won't know until it's done. I mean, again, we, we had talked about the state a little bit and, my lack of confidence is that the state would use any uh, settlement monies to directly benefit victims. Um, you know, that's always a concern of mine. I'm a skeptical guy when it comes to government. Having said that though, what I'm interested in seeing is this. There, one part of any settlement monies, or it could include the entire amount, could be a settlement pool. 
for victims who have been harmed. Right. I mean, it, it actually could be. It could be put in that pool, and then you set up a process. The state would set up a process for anybody who believes they have a claim to go make that claim with the state. And then what they tend to do is they tend to set up some sort of structure to what the what case values are, you know, depending on levels of harm. Um, and so that could happen when it comes to these settlements with the state. Um, now, what I personally would hate to see happen, uh, it's possible it could play out this way, is we end up in a scenario where all the monies available from the pharmaceutical companies to compensate victims are run through different state funds. You know, um, you know, but, you know, who knows? I mean, again, let's take the BP oil spill cases. You know, right. We essentially had one giant fund set up that was part of that BP oil settlement. And then lawyers all took their claims through that federal process to the federal court and said, here's my claim. Here's how my client's been harmed, you know, and everybody sort of lines up and you make your claim. And, you know, there's a, a process that's set up to evaluate the value of each of those claims. And ultimately they decide, you know, again, through that process, somebody is still deciding, is it a, is, is it a, a legitimate claim that meets our criteria? If so, that's step one. Uh, then the next step is what's the value of that claim, and then they pay out on it. And so, you know, that's possible where all this—it's possible that this all ends up there, um, you know, out of this original litigation uh, that's going on in Ohio. Uh, you know, I'd hate to see that happen, uh, but you know, again, what needs to happen with anybody who believes they have a claim? Who, believe, who says, hey, look, I've been harmed by, you know, oxycotton or oxycodone or any of these opioid medications. You got to go talk to a lawyer, you know, and, you know, find a lawyer who has some insight into this litigation, who's interested in helping you, because that's not everywhere. I mean, for starters, not all lawyers handle personal injury cases. And there, I would say, I think the vast majority of lawyers out there who handle personal injury cases don't necessarily take on mass um but if you don't go talk to somebody you're never going to get anything or get anywhere uh when it comes to uh, compensate being compensated for being injured and so that's where it starts i mean you know again all this is just getting rolling um you know and so i don't know where the where, what the ultimate resolution will be but that's a you know i mean these cases take years yeah you know, I mean, it's not a quick process. And so, you know, it's, uh, you know, but again, you know, I think there are a lot of people out there who have been harmed directly by opioids. You know, I agree. Um, and so, you know, I can't, you know, it's just, that's what everybody needs to do is start to gather information, find a lawyer they like, find a lawyer that they want to work with and move forward from there. Excellent. Great. Thank you so much, Doug. Um, that's awesome information. Um, if you've been affected by opioids, obviously first seek help with rehab, tell a family member. But, you know, secondly, if you feel like you might have a claim, reach out to Doug Zanes or any other mass tort attorney that might be able to help you. Um, Doug, just a couple more fun questions that weren't part of my list. Uh, I always end the podcast with something fun. What's your uh, favorite book? Favorite or what book? are you reading now? Oh, let's see. 
I think, oh, my favorite book that I've read in a while, and I'm spacing on the title. I can't remember if it's Shoe Dog, but it's the uh, Phil Knight's Nike book. Uh-huh. I think um, I've seen it. On the beginning of basically how he started uh, Nike shoes. You know, out of the trunk of his car back when he was a college kid and the evolution, you know, of building that company. Um, you know, I, I like re I like reading, you know, business books. Uh, you know, I've got, uh, and I actually this, at this conference I was at over the last couple of days, I've got them on my, uh, in my iPhone notes, but there are three books on leadership that I need to buy or I want to buy. What were they? Um, I don't know. I've got them. Oh, okay. uh, <laughs> well, there's a good podcast you got to listen to called Business Wars. There's one, uh, Nike versus Adidas. Uh -huh. Um, yeah. okay. And there's a few of them. So if you look like podcasts, I do. Um, that, that's, that's a good podcast because if you like the Nike story, you'll like to hear how they uh, overcame Adidas and, and the battle between the two companies. Yeah, because I like reading about yeah, the building of companies because it's so easy to mistakenly think, oh, it must have been easy. You look at what Nike is today and you read, you read the story what it took, yeah. What it took, and you realize, wow, you know, nothing's ever easy. Nothing no. doing is ever easy. And, you know, there are a number of points within that process where that something happened differently in that company wouldn't, wouldn't exist today. And yeah. so, you know, it's, uh, yeah, I find them very insightful just from a business perspective and trying to build and, you know, run our law firm. Yep, I agree. I mean, uh, business is tough. I had a friend reach out the other day through uh, – text message, I guess he saw my social media post that I'm traveling, he goes, oh man, looks like business is doing well. I'm like, well, I'm traveling to go gain some business, man. So uh, yes, it never yes. stops, it, it, it never stops. Um, yes. Favorite food? Mexican food. I like <laughs> You're in Arizona for a reason, yeah. right? Well, I grew up down on the you know, Mexican border here in a little town called Douglas, Arizona. So I grew up living off of tacos and enchiladas and you know, it was just Mexican food. And the show's called SEO Happy Hour for a reason. If you do drink, what's your poison? If not, what's what if? Well, I'm, a, I'm a red wine guy. Red um, wine. Cab red, or what? Yeah, I like heavy cabernets. Uh, nice. I, I love K Camus cabs. Uh, Camus style, nice. <laughs> uh, there are some, you know, there are a lot of red blends that we like, but uh, like Orange Swift has a new red blend called, uh, I think it's Eight Years in the Desert. Okay. Uh, for if you know wine and know Orange Swift, he created the Prisoner red wine blend, which is a great. Yeah, I had Prisoner the other night in Vegas. Yeah. Yeah, which I which I really like, um, and I guess when he sold, he had an eight year non compete to make red blends, and so the eight years is up, and now he has a wine called Eight Years in the Desert. Oh, really? It's really phenomenal. Uh, you know, no one can tell me if it's going to be something they continue to make or if it's sort of just a, Hey, we're back, you know, and it, it'll be around for a year or so, but it's really worth trying, you know, and, and it's kind of like the prisoner. I mean, it's not an inexpensive wine, but it's, it's about 45, 50 bucks a month, right. you know, at a, at a wine store or grocery, you know, at a, you know, at a wine store or a grocery store that sells good wines, but it's, you know, it's not a hundred or $120 bottle. So it's, it's reasonable. And yeah, I had a good one. Uh, I think it was called Mercury or something like that uh, by another uh, winemaker that left and had a non-compete and went and started that. and was really good. See, what's uh, pretty bad is it's much easier for me to sit here and name off the wines and talk to them 
talk about them than it is books. <laughs> Not sure what that says about me. Yeah, that says a lot. No. Um, awesome. So we talked favorite room. Cool. So we're all set. Doug, thank you so much. Um, I really appreciate it. This is awesome. Thanks so much for listening to SEO Happy Hour with We Do Web Content. For more great content and to stay up to date, go to wedowebcontent.com and on social medias at We Do Web Content. We'll catch you next time.